Let me say again a word of welcome not only to those of you gathered here, but uh, to those who now are joining us online or maybe you're coming back later in the week catching this in archived version. It's good to have you be a part of worship at Freedom, whether it's on campus or off campus. We're in a series that we started two weeks ago that is about how to change the world. And that is not just rah-rah speak. Jesus came to change the world and is doing so today. And he wants us to be a part of that process. And he has a specific plan for how to do that. We've got to be equipped to take part in that plan. And so that's what this series is all about. Uh, Beginning next week, we're really going to be getting down to the nuts and bolts of how to really effectively share your faith, how to share his story with others in a way that really does draw people to faith in Christ. But in getting there, we've been doing a couple of different things to lay the stage for that. And one of those is every week we're learning a memory verse to help us have a scriptural framework for sharing the gospel. And so we want to take a moment to rehearse that. Uh, knowing, I, I know I wear you out with this probably, doing this in here and doing it in a small group, but repetitions of the mother of learning, so we're going to keep it up. Our first memory verse from two weeks ago, if you were here, we're learning the Roman road. It was Romans 3.23. Do you remember what that one says? It's actually 10 and 23. There we go. Thank you, Patty, leading the way. There is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 and 23. Last week was Romans 6.23. It tells us what the result of our sin is. Do you remember what that one says? There you go. We'll do that together again. For the wages of sin, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good job. All right. It is sticking. All right. This week we are up to the third part. We've, we've said everybody has the problem of sin. And sin is a really big problem. That the result of that is not just physical death but separation from God. And now today Romans 5, 8. God's solution to our problem of sin. Is it on the screen? All right. Here we go. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's good news, isn't it? Before you deserved it, before you could do anything to move toward God, God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Let's declare that together again. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for for us. I always want to confuse verses 6 and 8, which sound a lot alike. And actually, if you're doing the whole Roman road, you can mark verses 6 and 8. We're just doing verse 8. Without it on the screen, let's try it again. Great job. Now take a moment, take 20 seconds, look at a neighbor, take turns saying it to one another without a prompt. Ready, set, go. Great job. Sounds good. Now one more time. Everybody together. But God. Great. This side of the room is a little faster than this side, but you all got to the same same finish line. Good stuff. All right. We're almost there. Next week we'll be in Romans 10, but uh, you've set a good framework for sharing the gospel. Today what we're going to do is sort of the second half of last week's message where we took time out to examine some of the other major religions of the world so that we have some frame of reference for how to talk to people who either come from those faith backgrounds or more likely maybe have just been been sort of confused by the message of religion that they've heard in the world today and, and maybe sort of come from a perspective of, well, aren't all religions the same? We need to have at least enough of an understanding to recognize what is so unique about our faith. And so last week we talked about how Christianity is one of the four great, in terms of size, the four great world religions, that they are Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism in, in that order. And if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a a little three-minute overview of what you missed last week. Christianity, just in terms of sheer numbers, there are about 2.4 billion Christians on the planet. 
there are about 1.4 billion Muslims, about 950 million Hindus, and around 450 million Buddhists. What that means is if you add together the second and third largest religions in the world, there are not as many of, of those people as there are Christians on the planet. It's a great reminder that the kingdom of God marches forward rapidly and encouraging to know that. We, we saw in terms of examining those other three religions that if you go back in time, 5,000 years, Hinduism appeared on the scene. And it, it is kind of a collection of faiths that says there's a lot of different gods and everything really revolves around the central concept of the wheel of life about being born again and again, being reincarnated over and over. And that what you're going to experience in life is all about karma. It's about you getting what you deserve based on what you did, usually in a former life. Did you do your duty? Did you do your dharma? And if you did what you were responsible to do for your station in life, in your former life, you'll move upward to a higher standing. And if you didn't, karma is going to move you to a worse place. If you're suffering today, you deserved it because of what you did in a former life. And there are about a bazillion gods for us to try and pursue and know. There you have this collection of ideas that's known as Hinduism. About 2,500 years ago, Buddhism sprang out of Hinduism, and it is similar in terms of they believe in the wheel of life, and there's a, the, all the teaching about reincarnation again and again, and that you do have to do your duty. But the thing that's different about, about Buddhism is, one, there's no God. There, there's no God to be concerned with at all. That the focus of Buddhism is trying to escape the cycle of, of life and death and reincarnation over and over. And that the real issue of Hinduism is suffering. Human suffering and that all suffering springs from human craving, our desire for things and all of the pain that's caused as a result of that. And so all of Buddhism is really, it revolves around following the eightfold path that leads us to not want to crave anything, to disconnect from the world and all that it offers so that we can arrive at a state of nirvana and escape this whole cycle of having to live and die and live and die again and again. What we discover is that while Buddhism sounds really foreign to us, there are a lot of people, a lot of people in the Bible Belt who would never, in terms of their thinking, agree with Buddhism, but who are practical Buddhists. They don't want to deal with God, and they live to escape pain. And they'll seek that in a lot of different ways. Don't make me have to deal with God, just free me from my pain. That's what Buddhism seeks to do. And then the third of the, the three that we talked about last week was, of course, Islam. Now, it's interesting that, that the thing that sets Islam apart from the other two is that they are the, the one monotheistic group out of those three. They believe in one God that they declare to be Allah. And, of course, uh, Islam revolves completely around the teachings of Muhammad, who lived about 1,400 years ago, and uh, the things that he wrote over a pretty short span of time, about 22 or 23 years, are all recorded in the Quran. You know, they declare that their faith is the faith of Abraham and Noah and, and Adam, but the God that they reveal, it, they are very clear, is not the God of Christianity. That this is, they, they say that Christians have totally twisted the idea and that we don't know the one true God. Well, rest assured that the God that they know is not the God that we know. Allah is an angry God. He is a far-off distant God. There is no revelation of any love from Allah for mankind. The only two ways that you're going to satisfy Allah is you better live by all the rules. You better get it right. You better be a good Muslim who obeys all of the Muslim laws, which are not inviting. Or you can just die for the faith. You can be martyred along the way, which is a big part of what causes the chaos in the world that we live in today and leads to a great deal of violence. Allah authorizes the use of force and violence to force people to convert or die. And so it, there's so far removed from the love of God that's revealed in the person of Christ is this, this God, Allah. Of Islam. So those were the big three that we talked about last week. Now, about three quarters of the planet's population completely has bought into one of these four faiths. 72 or 73 percent of the population of the earth is involved in one of these four religions. Anything beyond the big four, if you're going down the list, it's Sikhism and Judaism and so forth. Anything beyond the, the first four. The total makeup of any group is less than one half of one percent of the world's population. So there's there's this giant drop off between the top four and and all that's left. And you may feel like, well, what's the point of talking about anything else once you get beyond the big four? Well, there are two more that we want to talk about today. And the reason for that is because they originated in the U.S., 
they're relatively recent and modern, but most importantly, because they are on the grow in the U.S., they are very aggressive in spreading their idea of faith. And they have been to your door, and they're coming back to your door, both of these groups. So you know who's coming. You, you know who we're talking about today. We're going to take just a little bit of time to unpack Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's start with Mormonism. We're going to have fun. This is an interesting group of people. We want to, I first want to just tell you the, the Mormon story, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about what they believe and how we as Christians respond biblically to their message. Uh, if you, you may already know all of this, but if you don't know the Mormon story, it is one worth telling. Mormonism started in 1830, and in a sense it started in the 1820s in Fayette, New York with Joseph Smith. It was during the 1820s that Smith, who was the son of a Congregationalist couple, decided that he needed to find his own church. And so he says that he was praying and asking God for direction as to what type of Christian church he should go to, what denomination he should affiliate with. And God told him none of the above, that they have all gotten off course, that they have all twisted the truth, and that there is no faith on earth that is the true faith, and that God wanted to give the true faith in the one true God to Joseph Smith. And so he sent his angel Moroni to Smith, who led him to the place in New York where two golden tablets were buried. They were hidden. These must have been Whopper tablets because they contained hundreds and hundreds of pages of information. And so Smith goes and, and digs up these tablets, which have the accurate revelation of God on them. But the problem is they are written in a heavenly language that no one on earth can understand. And thankfully, Moroni has the solution. He brings for Smith uh, two dice, the Urim and Thummim. This is the, the lots, the dice in the Old Testament that would be cast before the Holy Spirit had come to speak directly the, the Word of God to people in Mass. They would roll the dice to discern the will of God. And so he brings Smith these two dice that he says are, are crystal, so you can see through them. And he uses them as very crude spectacles. If he looks through them at the golden tablets, suddenly he's uh, enlightened and he can read the heavenly language. And so day after day, Smith goes and links up with Moroni and he goes to where the tablets are hidden. And day after day, he transcribes, looking through these crude glasses, what he sees on the tablets. And a sort of humorous aside, after some weeks of doing this, when he's got about 130 pages of what would become the Book of Mormon written down... He's been doing this on the sly, and he's coming home, and he's hiding the pages that he's transcribed every day. But about 130 pages into this, Smith's wife stumbles upon what he's written so far. And when she reads this, when she sees what he's been doing, it's like, what have you been doing all this time that you're away? It's kind of like the mom in, in the Jack, and, you know, the moment when Jack and the Beanstalk and Jack comes home and looks, Mom, I, I've got these magic beans in the tray today. And, you know, she's all upset. It's kind of a moment like that where she's like, what have you been doing all this time? You know, well, look, honey, I've been writing down these messages from God. Well, she was about as thrilled as Jack's mom and Jack and the Beanstalk. And she tore the pages to ribbons, totally destroyed them. And, of course, Smith goes back to Moroni and says, I'm going to have to start over. My wife destroyed everything we had so far, and Moroni wouldn't let him do that. So about 130 pages don't exist because Smith's wife got mad, so we just don't know what that message was. He picked up at that point, continued to write it out, wrote an additional 500-plus pages for the work to be complete. In 1830, he published for the first time the Book of Mormon. The message from God through Moroni, through the tablets, to Joseph Smith, and began the church, which is better known in the U.S. as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you ever hear people just refer to themselves as, I'm LDS, that's not a learning disability, that is Latter-day Saints. They declare themselves to be a part of the broader Christian church. Let me be very clear about this. They are not in any shape or form. As you're about to see, they use the name Jesus. They do not know the Jesus that we know. They, they do not possess Christian faith. Now, just to finish telling you the, the Smith story and sort of the origins of, of Mormon's story, once he had preached his message, the new message of Jesus, the, the true message of faith, 
he gathered quite a following around him in New York. And he decided that it would be better for them to relocate further westward. And so they moved for a time to Illinois for a season to Missouri. And, of course, eventually they're going to wind up in Utah. But during one of those two stops where they landed in a city in Illinois, and they, they suddenly increased the population of that city by a great deal. And they're trying to build a Mormon community. And one of the things that's a sort of an interesting feature of Mormonism is their theology was evolving greatly with the passing of time because it does not just revolve around the Book of Mormon. He wrote, following that, he wrote the Book of Doctrines and of Covenants, and then he wrote the book The Pearl of Great Price, both of which are considered holy writings right alongside the Book of Mormon, which define their theology. Much of their theology is, is spelled out in the Book of Doctrines and Covenants. And so, as he's figuring out and fleshing out their theology, he's come upon the idea of polygamy. And he decides that this is a part of the message from God, that men should take multiple wives, that that's a good thing. Well, that was, even in that day, that was a radical thought. And as he began to preach that message... There in the Midwest, the people did not receive it well. And the people in this little community they had essentially taken over, some of them were so upset by this that they got together and they created a newspaper to completely refute and oppose the message of Smith. Well, sadly, that newspaper only got to print one edition because after that first edition, Smith's brothers, I don't mean like his Christian brothers, I mean like his flesh and blood brothers, were so angry over what was printed in that first edition of the newspaper designed to, to sort of blow up the theology of Mormonism that they went in and destroyed the newspaper. They, they just completely destroyed the office and the equipment, so it never printed another edition. Well, as a result, Smith and his brothers got thrown in jail, and several days later, while they were in jail, the people were still so stirred up that they formed a mob. They stormed the jail and they killed Joseph Smith. Unfortunately, Mormonism did not die with Smith. They decided, because now a, a real movement had been started, that they needed to find a new leader for the movement. Now, there were a few who splintered off and followed other leaders, but the majority of the group selected Brigham Young. Yes, that Brigham Young to be their new leader who decided we do need to continue to move westward and they did go westward and they landed of course in Utah and of course the Mormon temple is in Salt Lake City to this day that has has become their global headquarters and still is today if you're a good Mormon and you're married you would know that you need to go to Salt Lake City to have your marriage vows reaffirmed so that you'll have a celestial marriage so that you can be married for eternity to your spouse i guess if you're not real thrilled with your mate you may want to just keep it local but if you want it to last forever you're going to need to go to salt lake for that you can just ponder that one on your own that's sort of the story of how we got the mormon message but now i want to share with you more of the heart of what the mormon message is and your outline i realize it is very lengthy. The reason I've given you such a lengthy outline with no fill-ins is I just want this to be a handy reference for you. Um, the Book of Mormon tells, it's a bit of an adventure tale. It, it tells the story uh, about what's gone on in North America and Central America over the past two or 3,000 years. Now, it's a peculiar tale because it's about two different people groups that populated this continent. And, and by the way, Mormonism and, and the Book of Mormon, it, it is an American-centered thing. It, it started in New York. The story of the book is about North America, which is really interesting because lots of other histories of the world center around the Middle East and Mesopotamia. This centers around North America. The two people groups described in the Book of Mormon are the first group who are the, the refugees from the Tower of Babel. It's just a really peculiar reach way back into the ancient past to say the people who escaped the Tower of Babel, they migrated across Europe and somehow came across the Atlantic Ocean and landed on the, the eastern coast. And then about 600 years before Jesus, 2,600 years ago, a different group of people, Jewish people, left Jerusalem. They migrated eastward, got in some really big boats, and sailed across the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, if you can imagine, 2,600 years ago, landed on the West Coast, and these two groups created the two great civilizations of North America. It describes the vast cities that they built and their amazing exploits, and eventually these two groups met and collided. They did war 
again and again against one another. And along the way, you discover in the Book of Mormon that the, the group that were the, the East Coast tribe who had come from the Tower of Babel, that these were the wicked people. They disobeyed God all the time. And as a result, God cursed them with dark skin. Boy, this is one of those things that in modern times has not played out well at all. If you have dark skin, it's a result of the curse. You're, you're a descendant of this group. And it's why up until 1978, no one with dark skin could be a part of the clergy in the Mormon church. Somebody finally figured out uh, this isn't going to work so well in a culture where you can't just be all white and be accepted. And so they changed their theology and said, okay, you cursed dark skinned people can be a part of the clergy. But oh, by the way, women were also a part of the group that were excluded. And so to this day, women cannot be a part of the clergy within the Mormon church. Well, these two groups warred against each other again and again. Eventually, the Jewish tribes won out, and they were the blessed ones. They were the ones who sought to obey the Lord and had the truth. Jesus, just after his resurrection 2,000 years ago, came to North America, and he appeared to them. He made his American debut and gave them the truth, and they followed this for a while, but then they got off course, and they disobeyed his teachings, and so they had civil wars. Their civilization collapsed. And ultimately, all that's really left in America were the descendants of the evil, dark-skinned people. And that's where we got the American Indians from. End of story. It's a really bizarre story if you read it. And here is the single most striking feature in the whole thing. If you read the Bible and you compare it to the archaeological findings, all of them, what you'll discover is that there are thousands upon thousands of archaeological digs and finds which consistently support and demonstrate that the Bible is an accurate historical account of what's gone on. Thousands of records. The North American version recorded in the Book of Mormon, there has never been one single artifact ever uncovered which would support the Mormon version of the story. The Book of Mormon is completely a work of fiction from start to finish. Now when you get down to what the, the Book of Mormon, and not just the Book of Mormon, but all three of, of their Joseph Smith written holy books record, you'll find some really peculiar theology. Now here's where they, they package this thing nicely because people who are Mormons... First of all, they package their stuff nicely because they're all about family values. That plays really well, and they have got great advertising people. They make some of the best commercials out there. They are, I mean, it's Budweiser and, Book of, and the Mormons that make the best commercials, don't they? They spend the advertising dollars. It's the family values commercials. So it's packaged very well. And part of their packaging is they will tell you, we believe the Bible. They believe the King James Version of the Bible. Here is the catch. The Bible is corrupted, though. The version that we have today, the one version we can accept is King James. And you have to interpret the Bible only in light of the other three books that were written by Smith. So at any point that the Bible conflicts with the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, or the Book of Doctrines and Covenants, we have to defer to Smith's three books because the Bible was corrupted there. So you get that, don't you? I mean, what we're saying is we want the legitimacy of the Holy Scriptures... But on every point where we don't like what those say, we're going to revert back to what Mr. Smith had to say. Well, what you'll find when you pull back the curtain of the legitimacy of family values and of, oh yeah, we do believe the Bible on a lot of points. What you'll find in terms of their theology is, first of all, they believe that God is three different distinct beings. There is not one God. There is a God who is Father, there is a God who is Son, and there is a God who is Holy Spirit. And the, the core of where their theology gets really odd is that they believe that the God that we know was once a man. I mean, that, that's one of the most famous uh, Mormonisms. The, one of their most famous quotes is, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. And this is the heart of their theology. Now, there are a lot of Mormons walking around who don't even understand the core theology. But here's what they believe and teach. It's in their writings. That the God that we know was once a man. He was a man created by other gods who once were men. The God that we know was created on another planet. 
and he lived life as he was supposed to. And ultimately, at the appropriate time, he was essentially promoted the way that humans can ultimately be promoted and can become gods over our own planets. But the story of the God that we know and of this earth is that God was once a man. Eventually, other gods made him to be a god over this planet. And so Father God came together with Mother God, a separate God. And they had spirit babies, lots and lots of spirit babies. All of us are among the multitudes of spirit babies that the Mormon Father God and Mother God had. The very first spirit baby that they had, they named Jesus. And the second spirit baby that they had, they named Lucifer. And then all of us followed after that. Now, I would remind you at this point the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1 when he said this. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. We are in the latter days. I think we're all pretty well convinced of that. And it's important to understand that demons don't just run around doing harm in physical ways but that there are demons whose task it is to mislead people with organized, systematic thinking to create false religions designed to pretend to be true Christian faith. One of the most fundamental things that screams that Mormonism is an expression of this is to understand that Mormonism declares that Jesus was a creation of God. He was was born, literally, Because God, Father God, had sex with Mother God. That Jesus is not divine as the creator of the world. But more importantly, that Jesus and Lucifer are on level playing ground because they're brothers. They are spirit brothers, both just born by God. To elevate Lucifer to the same position as Jesus is completely a doctrine of demons designed in the kingdom of darkness. This is not another form of Christianity. This is evil in a, in a glowing golden package. Well, the Mormon theology teaches that God decided that in order for mankind to have an opportunity to experience the very best, which is to be promoted to ultimately be gods of our own planets. Ladies, I am sorry, but this is only for men. You don't get to have your own planet. But if you live righteously, you can be eternally pregnant. So there's a sweet deal for you. Guys, you can be God over a planet. Ladies, you can carry a baby forever. Yes, sign me up for that. In order to have the opportunity to experience either of these wonderful outcomes, these spirit babies had to be given bodies. And so God realized that It's really, it sounds convoluted, but God realized that for this to happen, we would have to step out of what had been kind of sinless perfection and into the earthly experience where we would enter into the experience of sin. It would affect all of us. And then we would have to have an opportunity to redeem ourselves out of that. And by doing so, we could then qualify ourselves to get our own planets, that we could make it ultimately to the celestial heaven. And so that's what God did. He just began to give us bodies. And so that's what's been going on for thousands of years. God has been taking these pre-existent spirit babies and making human beings out of us, all affected by sin. And Jesus came to deal with sin at one level, but ultimately we have to deal with our own sin, overcoming that by obeying the Book of Mormon and the teachings of the Mormon Church and living a righteous life. It is only by your good deeds and your obedience to the Mormon teaching that you can then ultimately work your way up to the highest of the heavens. Now, there are three different versions of heaven, depending on how you live your life, that you're going to get into. There is the telestial heaven, the terrestrial heaven, and the celestial heaven. I know you didn't care anything about that. The point is, the lowest of these three, if you don't live such a great life, that's where you're going to go. It's not hell, it's not such a bad place, but it's not a great place. If you live a good life, but you're not a Mormon, you're going to make it to the middle of those three. But if you live a righteous life, and you're a faithful Mormon, you're going to make it to the celestial heaven, which gives you the opportunity to ultimately be either eternally pregnant or become a god over your own planet. Is this sounding even vaguely like Christianity to anybody? 
I'm serious. Now, the scary thing is nobody knocking on your door is going to talk to you about any of this. They're going to package it as family values and, oh, we believe in Jesus and we believe the Bible. Yeah, you believe the King James Version of the Bible in all of the little places where it doesn't contradict the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. It's a theology that elevates Lucifer, that brings Jesus down to be far less than what the Scriptures teach. Mormonism is today growing rapidly. It's grown to have at least 15 million people and is growing literally by hundreds of thousands per year. And a big part of why it's growing like this is because there's such an emphasis on mission and evangelism. And so the, the men are expected to go on two-year tours either in the U.S. or abroad to go door-to-door and to share their faith. And chances are they have been to your door. If you've, if you've had Mormon missionaries come to your door since you've lived on the eastern shore, let me see a show of hands. Yep, they've pretty much gotten to most all of us. If they haven't made it to your house yet, they are coming. They will be there again and again. And they, you know, they are very polite. They're very easy to recognize. And in just a moment, we're going to get down to specifically some of how we respond. But first, I want to take just a moment and just point out to you from the Scriptures part of, of why we hold what we believe and where it stands in contrast to what they teach. Galatians 1, and quite honestly, the book of Galatians is a great beginning point for us. I would remind you that when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatian church, these were a people who had just so openly accepted the message of the gospel. They had turned to Christ in repentance and been saved. And after Paul left and he went on down the line to the next cities that he would evangelize, some people came in behind him who said, Oh, listen now, Paul, that message that he gave you about Jesus, that's all good. The Jesus stuff, and that, that was all nice stuff. But he didn't give you the whole story. He didn't tell you all that you need to know. Because for you to be pleasing to God and to go to heaven, you've got to be circumcised and you must follow all the rules of the law. And that's ultimately how you get into to be good with God. And they taught the Old Testament law. Paul wrote his letter to the Galatian church, and it is supercharged with emotion. Galatians 1.8 is just a great little sampling of what he has to say in response to these people who followed up with this twisted message. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven, this is significant for the Mormons, since Moroni is so key in their, their message. If we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. You get what he's saying? In modern vernacular, he is literally saying anybody that's going to come and take the message of Jesus and twist it into anything other than what we told to you, they need to go to hell is what they need. That is exactly what he said. Not in the figurative, curse you kind of sense. In the literal, that is what God has for people who do that. They are hell bound. Now, I know that we live in a time where tolerance and acceptance are the ultimate American virtue. And it's like, oh, but you're being closed-minded. If you pass judgment and you say that these good family-oriented people aren't going to heaven, friends, it's not being closed-minded. We have to say what the Bible says. And Paul says, if you preach a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus that Paul declared and that the gospels declare, you will be eternally condemned if you buy into anything else. And a gospel that says that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and that the way that you get to heaven is by following Mormon teaching, it doesn't matter, Paul says, if you got it from an angel or from somebody else. Whoever gave it to you is worthy of eternal death because that gospel will never make you right with God. That's still true today. Amen? You better know it's true. A couple of other passages worthy of consideration. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says, There is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord. Everybody say, one Lord. There is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things were created and through whom we live. That doesn't sound like Smith's writings, does it? 
There is one God, not a bunch of gods who made more people who became more gods and you get to be more gods. There is one God. There is one Lord. One Lord Jesus Christ created everything. He didn't get born in creation. He created everything. Smith's writings don't line up well at all with this. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. Tate read this at the start of the service. You have been chosen. This is God speaking. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. Say it with me. I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. Do you hear God equivocating any in that? Oh, call me what you want to. Call me Allah. Call me by any other name. You know, turn this kind of into whatever you want to. Spirit, baby God, whatever you want this to be. I'm good with it. That is not what God is saying. I am the only God. I have revealed myself to you. You get to know me. Don't mess this up. There never was another God. There never will be another God. I alone am God. We had better Not let ourselves be sucked into this modern way of thinking that whatever you want to call God, there are lots of gods. Maybe there's one God. Call him what you want to. There is one God. And he doesn't go by many pagan names. Okay. We'll call time out there and move on briefly to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses are not as large a group as the Mormons. And again, worldwide, Mormonism... You know, 15 million may not sound that strong, but it's the growth of of that group that's a concern. And the same is true for the Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll be kind of brief with them. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, started in the 1880s, again, in the U.S. by a man by the name of Charles Taze Russell. To be a Jehovah's Witness, there is one central thing that you have to do, and if you don't do this, it's never going to work for you. You must accept the New World Translation of the Bible. Everything hinges on this. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses want to tell you in one sense, oh yeah, we're part of Christianity, but we're the, we're the only part of Christianity that got it right. That, it's, it's a really kind of a weird double message. It's like, yeah, you know, you, you're on, if you're a Christian, you're on your way to the truth. We identify with you, but the reason you don't have the truth yet is because you don't have our version of the Bible. And you bet your bippy we don't have your version of the Bible. Because their translation of the Bible is not a translation. It is not. They have never, in their 135-year history, been willing to produce the name of any scholar ever involved in creating their translation of the Bible. It's because there were no scholars involved in it. You can't get their translation from the Scriptures. In fact, if you really want, if you really want to mess with the mind of a Jehovah's Witness at your door, I've done this before where you know, they'd come in and try and take the Scriptures and, and teach their theology, which we're fixing to get into for a minute, what they've done is they've taken our Bible, and at the points where they want to insert their theology, they just go back and rewrite the portions that don't match up to what they believe and say, oh, this is the correct translation. And I've just kind of had fun with them to say, tell me where that came from in your Bible. Where, why do you believe that? Oh, and you know, they'll quote a passage of Scripture, and it's like, no, it doesn't say that. Oh, it does. Let me show you. I'm like, do you mind if I pull out the Greek New Testament? Let's look at it together. Let's see. And you pull out the Greek, and it doesn't line up at all with what the Greek says. And they don't have anywhere to go with that. The only way you can accept this is to ignore that the Old Testament is Hebrew, the New Testament is in Greek, and everything that we have that's not Hebrew or Greek is a translation of that, and that what they have doesn't translate the Hebrew or Greek words. They have inserted their own ideas to create a religion that, once again, like Mormonism, we want the legitimacy of saying the Christian Bible is our Bible, except all your Bibles are wrong and ours is right. Do you see the wicked twist on that? We want to take the truth, put our turn on it, and say, now we've got the real thing. Sort of Christian, but Christian it is not. Jehovah's Witnesses have their, their base, their home base globally is in Brooklyn, New York. And from Brooklyn, they produce their publication by the bazillions, the Watchtower Press, the Watchtower Magazine. You'll know a, a Jehovah's Witness immediately because they are going to be shoving literature into your hands. When they come to your door, we just want to share this with you. And it's all got Watchtower Press stamped on it. If you're, if you're wondering and wanting to know whether a person... Because um, Mormons are usually easier to 
to pick out because they've got on the dark pants and the white. I, did, I didn't dress this to be like Mormon for you today. That is ironic. But they, you know, usually they'll be like in, in black or navy slacks and a white shirt, and they'll have on a name badge. So it, it doesn't say Mormon, but, you know, they're just easy to pick out. Jehovah's Witnesses, on the other hand, don't come in uniform. They, they just blend in a little more naturally. But you'll know what they are because they've got their literature in hand, and if you'll flip it over, it's all stamped with Watchtower Press, and you can know you have, you have found a Jehovah's Witness. Um, I'm just going to quickly run through some of the, their key teachings. They reject the idea of the Trinity. Uh, they believe that Jesus... Now, once again, think in terms of doctrines of demons. Demons are always going to seek to bring Jesus down and want to elevate Lucifer. Jesus was originally one of God's creations. He was St. Michael, the archangel. He was God's first created being. Uh, The Holy Spirit is just an impersonal force to them. He is not divine. Uh, Again, this is a fundamental uh, demonic teaching. Demons will never confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. It actually becomes one of the scriptural tests. And Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Um, In their theology, they believe that... And again, it's one of those places where it's like, well, they sound Christian because they believe that Jesus came, but he came as a spirit, but he looked like a man. And they believe that Jesus died on the cross... And they believe that what was going on was that Jesus was giving his life to pay off Jehovah God, that his life was a ransom payment to God. And once that payment had been made, the ransom has been paid in full. Now the doorway is open not for us to go to heaven, but for us to begin to work to try and earn our salvation. You never had the chance to work your way to salvation until Jesus did that, but now that the that God's anger has been satisfied to the extent that the ransom has been paid, now you can begin to work toward earning your salvation. And what would Paul say to this? If any man or any angel comes and preaches to you a gospel other than the one you have received from us, may he be eternally condemned, is what Paul would say to that. It's It's a message of good works to earn your way... I can't even say into heaven, as you're about to see. Because their theology is very much, uh, it's it's affected by modern thinking and by rationalism. You have to bear in mind, it's a modern movement. It started in 1880. So think how incredibly modern. It's American. It's, you know, it's very much really 20th century when you get down to it. And so it's, it's been so impacted by rationalism that, I mean, things like the physical death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rationalism just doesn't allow for that. A body that's been butchered and dead for three days just can't come back to life. And so they just believe that just a spirit was raised. Jesus paid off Jehovah, and now spirit Jesus is raised up. And now Jesus' great concern is... In coming back to earth to conquer Satan's kingdom and set up his millennial, his 1,000 year reign. And so Jehovah's Witnesses believe as a key part of their theology that in 1914, Jesus came back to the earth. Once again, it's kind of this confusing thing for us. He's back on earth, but he's not in physical form. Jesus came back in his spirit form. And he has been actively working now for about 102 years to overthrow Satan's kingdom on earth and to set up his 1,000-year reign, which is just going to be a theocratic reign. It's just going to be, there isn't going to be an earthly power. It's just going to be Jesus, large and in charge, for 1,000 years on the earth. So, again, they're pulling from the Christian scriptures, but they're putting their own twist on it. I'm not sure how they arrived at 1914, but that was the year that Jesus showed back up, and he's been putting all of this in motion. And everything is building toward Armageddon. If you've ever taken the time even to just look at... Um, like the covers and the, the, the headlines for a lot of the Watchtower stuff. I mean, like, I don't know if you've noticed, but for instance, I noticed in the last six months that um, in Fairhope, right there on Fairhope Avenue, like, um, you know, next door to Jewelwins, there's kind of that little, little open park here between Jewelwins and the library. They love that corner, and they'll set up their stands with their Watchtower stuff sitting out there. I've seen, seen them there multiple times, and a lot of times... You'll see on there stuff about war. It's, it's sort of an eye-catching thing, you know. What are your thoughts about war? And they, you know, they're, they're trying to engage you on that. Part of 
how they're using that as a hook is because Jehovah's Witnesses teaching, it very much revolves around Armageddon. Armageddon's almost here. It's going to be the great conflict. Again, they're pulling from the Christian scriptures. We're on the verge of the great conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness where Jesus is going to lead us in battle and, and it's just about to happen and this victory is going to just usher in this thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth and they believe that following the battle of Armageddon that everybody's going to experience everybody that was righteous is going to experience their resurrection now one of the places that they differ from Christians is they believe that if you did not buy into the Jehovah's Witnesses faith that you just are annihilated at death they believe in soul and spirit annihilation. You're just gone. There is no resurrection for you. There is no consciousness. You're just, you're done. If you lived a righteous life, you'll be resurrected following Armageddon with two options. Either to live on earth, which is what the vast majority of people are going to do, or the 144,000 chosen are going to get to reign with Jesus in heaven. Now, some teach that those slots are all already filled, so... You know, at best you get to live on earth, but that's still, you still get resurrected. And of course, if you know anything about Jehovah's Witness teaching, they are obsessed with the fact that God only goes by one name. You've got to call him by the right name, and as their name would suggest, you, you know what that is. It is Jehovah. He doesn't answer any other name. Don't pray to Jesus. Don't, don't pray to any other name. You pray to Jehovah, which is completely ironic because Jehovah... Truly, is not a revealed name of God in the Scriptures. There's nothing wrong with the name, and I won't go far down this rabbit trail, but, but it is worth saying. It points to how unintellectual this rational movement is. The most revered name of God in the Scriptures was Yahweh from the Old Testament. It was considered the most holy name of God, to the extent that the Jewish people would not voice that name. They thought that that was, that was just inappropriate that you would say that. They didn't want to say it and they did not want to write it. And so in place of Yahweh, they would insert the name, the title Adonai, which means Lord. Well, in your Old Testament, you can count just scores and scores of times, countless times through the Old Testament, that you'll see the words, the word Lord and all four letters will be capitalized. Every time that you see that, you can know that if you were reading it in Hebrew, if you were reading the ancient text, they have inserted the title Adonai in place of the proper name Yahweh. But when you see big L-O-R-D, it is telling you this is where the name for Yahweh was originally used. But it just it got written as Adonai. Well, because of this kind of this tension between Adonai isn't what it really said. It really said Yahweh, but we don't feel like we're supposed to say Yahweh. Somewhere along the way, somebody came up with this idea of, what if we combine the two? And I realize in English this doesn't sound like it works, and we're not a bunch of Hebrew scholars, but you just have to bear in mind Y and J are the, translate as the same letter, and uh, V and W as the same letter. So they took the consonants from Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai. Again, if you read it in Hebrew, it makes sense. It doesn't look great in English. But if you put those on top of each other, you put the vowels from Adonai into the consonants for Yahweh, again, letting... H, I mean, letting V and W swap out, letting Y and J swap out, you wind up with Jehovah as the bottom line. I, I know that that sounded confusing because we're not Hebrew scholars, but do you get the point? We made up that name. There's nothing wrong with it. We're combining the proper name that God revealed for himself, Yahweh, with the title Lord, and we created the name Jehovah out of that. And they've said, that's the only name that God allowed. That was the true name that God revealed to us. Actually, that wasn't a name that God revealed, period. It's our way of trying to express that Yahweh is Lord. Okay, I know that didn't serve any good purpose other than it really is ironic and foolish. Like the whole idea of buying into a version of the Bible that's not a translation of the Bible. Well, let's see if I've missed any major point that I've, I've put in here. Uh, just a couple of uh, practical things. Jehovah's Witnesses are pacifists. They reject people in professional ministry. And it's only been in very recent years that they accepted the idea of church buildings. They do not believe in professional uh, clergy or, or leadership in ministry. Uh, they're against blood transfusions and all types of uh, worldly involvement and worldly politics. Only Jesus as your, your governing, governing leader. 
Um, I, I will point out one other thing about them. In 1981, when the movement was about 100 years old, some of their leadership apparently started reading real translations of the Bible. And the thing that you can't miss if you're reading the New Testament is the concept of justification by faith. That you can't get saved by good works. That you only get saved by placing your faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. They started reading about that and started saying, we need to change our theology. If we're going to be a church that teaches the Bible, we've got to declare that you get saved by trusting in Jesus. And a real split started taking, it just started splintering right in the heart of the church. Well, there was enough of a majority in power to vote out everybody who began to believe in justification by faith, and they excommunicated everyone who bought into the idea of justification by faith. The reason that I'm telling you this is to point out this is not the Christian gospel. When people within this church began to seek to embrace the Christian gospel, they were immediately put out of the church. You can't be, by definition, you can't be a Jehovah's Witness and believe in justification by faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. Anybody see a problem with that? I hope we do. Well, they got all of those people out and affirmed their beliefs. Today there are roughly 9 million Jehovah's Witnesses and they are indeed a global movement on the grow. I'm going to briefly share with you some, some scriptural responses to that and we're going to be done. Here are just some good starting points. If you ever have to actually converse with a Jehovah's Witness. John begins to reveal Jesus referring to him as the Word, the revelation of God. He said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him were all things made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word became what? The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is not Michael the archangel. This is not a creation of God. Jesus was the agent of creation. God was the designer of all creation. Jesus was the builder of all creation. He has eternally existed. 1 John 4. Boy, here's an important one as we deal and interact with other faiths. John said this, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world, and this is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body. In other words, other translations will say, if Jesus Christ came in the flesh, which Jehovah's Witnesses say he did not. That person has the Spirit of God. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the Spirit of what? Of the Antichrist. If somebody wants to talk about Jesus and they have a message other than Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh, who died and rose again, bodily rose again, if that is not their message and they have a spiritual message... John said, be clear about this. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. That is a doctrine of demons. This is critical stuff. I know this is heavy theology. This is important stuff. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. They're saying, you've got to work your way. After Jesus has paid the ransom, now you can work your way towards salvation. But Paul said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Friends, this is the heart of our faith. You get saved by trusting in Jesus and following Him, not through good works. One final word, and I'll be done. How do you deal with these nice people knocking on your door? We're from the South. We're supposed to invite everybody in for tea, right? Maybe not. Second John, verses 9 and 10, says this. Anyone who goes beyond Christ's teachings and does not continue to follow only his teaching does not have God. Any debate about that? I mean, the, the writers of Scripture, they didn't leave any wiggle room. They go beyond the teaching about Jesus. They don't have Jesus. But whoever continues to follow the teachings of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Here's the critical part. If someone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not welcome or accept that person into your house. 
Well, that's not very nice, is it? Doesn't sound very hospitable. There's a time in life you don't have to be hospitable. Doesn't mean you have to be ugly. But think of it in these practical terms. They have followed the doctrines of demons. They have followed something that absolutely is not the truth. Every time you invite somebody into your house, there's the very great likelihood that you're inviting more than a human being into your house. That's up to you what you want to bring in your house. But John's giving a real practical exhortation. If somebody comes in at at your door, they are clearly declaring, I'm here representing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm here as a Jehovah's Witness. Well, guess what I already know about you? You have bought into the teachings of demons and you're seeking to spread that. Not only do I not need you in my house, I don't need whatever pals are attached to you that I can't see being deposited in my house. So I'm going to be polite with you at the doorstep. And as I consistently do, I'm going to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I know, trust, and follow Jesus. In fact, a lot of times, boy, this, this... In most situations, to say you're a minister is not a help. This is one of those times it is a great aid to say, I am a a full-time minister of the gospel, and I get to share Jesus as a pastor every day. Thank you for your time. And they are moseying back out to the road because particularly Jehovah's Witnesses do not want to be taken to task on what the Scriptures say because it's one of those faiths you have to follow pretty blindly. Now, I haven't said all that today and last week to try and make sport of people that Jesus loves and Jesus died for. That is not the case at all. But what I hope you've seen last week and this week as we have examined five other major faiths is that Christianity is not just one in the middle of the pack that's really like all the rest of them. Christianity is distinct from all of them. It's not thousands of gods. It's not no God. It's not an angry God. I mean, this is the thing that the other monotheistic faiths say is God is watching to see if you'll work your way into salvation. Christianity is the one true faith that says that there is one God who has eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this one true God, this is the only faith that says this, He loves you. He loves everyone on this planet. And He has been willing to go to extraordinary lengths to bridge the gap between us. He bridged that gap with the death and resurrection of His Son, paying the price for our sin. And He has made it possible that by simply placing our faith and trust in what Christ has done through His death and resurrection, for us to be moved from the kingdom of darkness where we've been living a life that really is more death than life and to be made alive to become the brothers and sisters of Christ, to be a part of the family of God. This is the true Christian message. And anything that puts a twist on that, it's not Christian faith. And it will not connect you to God. It's a substitute that keeps you from knowing the one true faith. Understand that what Paul got so mad about with the Galatians, it wasn't people bringing in some other book. They were quoting the Old Testament of our Bible. And they were saying, this is the way to salvation. And oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Paul said that message takes you to hell. And that anybody who preaches a message other than faith in Jesus as the way of salvation is worthy of hell. It's critical that we stand for and defend the faith, that we understand the faith, and that we buy into the faith. Would you join me as we go to the Lord right now and bow our heads and give thanks? Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you have become everything that we need, the scripture says, for life and godliness. Thank you that we don't have to climb a ladder We don't have to follow the eightfold path. We just have to follow you, the one true living God who has given your life so that we could know forgiveness in life. Would you help us to do that faithfully? It may be that today in just wrestling with with the truth and what others believe and what we believe that you've realized that you need to be one who places your faith in Jesus Whether you're here in the room or watching and listening online, I want to encourage you, don't put that off. Jesus invites you today to know him, to receive forgiveness. And if that's what you need to do, would you just pray a simple prayer from your heart saying, Lord Jesus, 
I do believe in you. Even if I've still got some doubts or questions, I choose to put my faith in you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you to come into my life to forgive me and to make a new person out of me. I'm giving you control of the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me and saving me. God, I give you thanks that you are so faithful to answer that prayer. And I thank you that you're working your plan out in our lives. And I pray that you'd make us effective in sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. We give you thanks for that privilege as we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.